Big Ten Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me those ears. And if you're watching this on video, thank you for lending me those eyeballs. Today, I have the great Robert Rose, who's the Chief Strategy Officer for the Content Advisory. Robert, how are we doing today? <laughs> We're doing fabulously well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, I'm glad to be here uh, with you. Uh, the folks over at Big Tin Can said, you got to talk to this guy. I'm like, why? They said, you're going to find out why. So we're going to find out why together. Robert, let them know a little bit about who you are, what your company does, and why Big Tin Can says you're special. Uh, well, I'm not sure why they think I'm special, but I certainly <laughs> like those folks over there. You know, I've been in marketing for the last 30 years and now have the gray hair to prove it. Um, and, you know, I've spent most of my career in content. And what I mean by that is, is that, you know, back about 12 years ago, um, I was the CMO of a software company and, and, um, Basically, without really understanding what I was doing, I built a content marketing team um, and was really changing marketing in my little startup into being a media company because that's my background. I come out of television and, and, and all of that, and it's new, what I knew how to do. And weirdly enough, this whole content marketing thing worked, and the, you know, we grew the company and I've had a successful exit and all of that. And then I teamed up with my pal, Joe Polizzi, and we ended up starting this thing called the Content Marketing Institute where we really evangelized this idea. And I sort of hung out a, shung, a shingle to, uh, to consult. So I've spent the last 12 years consulting. I used to say I run around the planet. I do a lot less running around the planet these days, um, but really work with brands of all sizes, typically larger, matrix, siloed, global, you know, all those fun words with big companies, helping them sort out the idea of how they create content as a strategic function in sales enablement, in marketing, in PR and communications, and really turning it into a strategic function in the business. And, and you know, we've been very lucky to work with a number of brands all over the planet, usually Fortune 500 companies. And yeah, it's been, a, you know, along the way, I've written a couple of books, I host a podcast, and it's been, it's been a great journey so far. Robert, I can tell I'm going to like you. I can tell already. Yeah. This, this is going to go well already. The uh, first of all, I, I now I see the TV background because your picture looks beautiful already. So this is the man who <laughs> understands the visual piece of this thing. So well done. Uh, let's 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 kind of peel back everything you just said. There's a lot of stuff in there. I want to uh, sure uh, break apart. So 20 years in marketing. I have a confession to make. Hope you don't mind. Uh, I used to laugh at marketing people. Like years ago, I used to laugh at marketing people. Like remember, remember yeah. the John Wanamaker line: fifty percent of my marketing works. I just don't know which fifty percent works. That whole thing. Sure. And sure. so I thought marketing. Yeah. Didn't never ever... said that, by the way. But yeah, but it. Oh, wasn't it? Who was it? Who was it that said it then? <laughs> it was. It was attributed to him. I don't think anybody's ever said it. Quite honestly, okay. I think it was okay. one of the, one. It's one of those things that has become legend that um, that uh, that that gets attributed to him. And it's great. It's true, by the way. Um, and and you know, it's one of those things where you know we. So as a marketing fanboy, you know, I'm 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 often sent in to defend such a statement, and right. you know, and we can certainly talk about that. But yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, we're gonna give it to Johnny. What the heck? Yeah. But anyway, so but you know, fast forward, you know, the market's changed because today I see marketing uh, more in a pole position, obviously, than sales, because marketing is all about conditioning, you know, the buyer's preferences because they do searching online and stuff like that. What is your take on the evolution of marketing? And I'm giving you know, in, in that 20 years, kind of give us your tiptoe through the tulips version of what you've seen 
what marketing was and what it is today? You know, it's a great question. And, and, and this, you know, the, the difference here, I think, has been, and, and we could certainly talk about the differences between B2B and B2C, right? So, you know, because, you know, I get the, the new sort of mantra that we're all people and B2C and B2P is still selling to people. And we're all, all I human. get all that, but Robert, it is a different process. Yeah, right. Yeah, it is a different process. So putting that aside for the moment, the difference between B2C and B2B, there, where, the evolution of marketing has really become one where it is a, you know, digital really changed the idea of what marketing was going to be. So for the last 22, 23 years, what digital has done has elevated the idea of marketing to all parts of the customer's journey. It used to be marketing was really focused in on the very top of the, you know, the funnel or the journey or whatever your metaphor that you like, and really about driving open awareness and pouring leads into the organization. And then it was up to either salespeople on the B2B side or the retail experience or some other experience to actually close the deal. And what digital really wrought was marketing as a strategic fabric of the business where everybody is now in some ways part of the marketing experience, part of the customer experience. And nowhere has that been more pronounced than the relationship between marketing and sales. And, and the one thing that I always believed was that marketing and sales is you know, a, a singular and conjoined process, not two separate processes that are managed I separately. I used to yell at people who would say, well, the CMO is going to come in with their plan, and then the, you know, the VP of sales is going to come in with theirs, and they're going to look at each other and agree on a particular, you know, and then go back to their various offices and blame each other for all the things that are going to go on. No, it needs to be one plan. It is a sales and marketing plan. And that is really at the key of what successful businesses, I think, are doing these days is integrating those processes in a much more cohesive way. Do you think there's going to be this, um, it's kind of a loaded question, there's got to be, I think, a new title, a new, you know, in other words, when you look at marketing, sales, and customer success or service, it seems like those three things have to be collapsed under one title or one authority for that to really be brought together. Would you agree or disagree or add your flavor to that? You know, I would add, I would, I, would, I would have it be additive. You know, there's a lot of ink being spilled around the idea that some believe that the CMO title is just too big these days. It's just too big a job for, you know, so you end up with things like chief experience officer, chief revenue officer, chief customer sales officer, you know, all these different titles that are starting to bifurcate underneath, you know, either the CMO title or the CEO title. And start to handle varying degrees of slices of the of the process of the marketing and sales idea, and I don't disagree with that. For some organizations, it, it really works. However, the challenge that I see, the flip side of that, is that it requires then a much more cohesive communication and operational structure to be able to make that work. Because the minute you start putting it under different fiefdoms. The, the, the immediate risk is that you're going to silo off all the organizations. Content marketing is a great example of that, right? Content marketing becomes this really interesting process to introduce into businesses. But the risk is, is that you build a team that becomes siloed just like every other team that's in the business. And so I think you're right in the sense that 
there is an opportunity there to sort of focus executives and managers into particular areas because it has become so broad and complex. But I also like the idea of that, you know, I mean, look, I'm an old school guy, command and control, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. is, you know, comes with both command and control. And the idea is, is that if you can do it without, you know, siloing the organization, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be pretty good. Yeah. I've always looked at it as a, you know, there's to me that the new title, whatever that title is today, right, that combines all three is more of the function and using your word, the bifurcations underneath that function, like content management, uh, the customer experience, the customer journey are features of that function. So in other words, let's say it's, it's the new, it's a rev dev. You know, revenue development officer, that's the new title. Then marketing, sales, customer support, all these things are under there. And every small, as you say, bifurcation still falls under that umbrella. And that's kind of how I see it. Uh, thoughts? I like it. I, I, I like that very much, you know, because I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I much prefer the focus on the function rather than the form of how it, of, of, of how it uh, you know, of how it actually looks. You know, for example, I'll tell brands all the time, I'll say, I don't care if you call it content marketing. I don't care if you have a team doing content marketing, as long as you're doing the function of content marketing, right? As long as you have addressed the discipline of doing it well and integrated it throughout the rest of the business, I don't care whether you have people that have the title of content marketing or not. Right. By the way, I know you're old school now because you use form. Old school people (laughs) use forms. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you, man. I'm so with you. Let's talk content marketing and, you know, when you work with companies, I, I guess I should back up. Walk me through a scenario where somebody would bring you in. Like, you know, give me company X, kind of called it ABC company, uh, or we can go, you know, roadrun and just call it Acme. The Acme company comes in. They have this problem. You come in and say, here's kind of what you need to do, and then here are the results they see. Walk me through that customer sure. journey. Sure. The most common problem that we get is that Acme company has – started to do content. And and when I say content, I mean, they've started a thought leadership program, or they've started a blog, or they've started multiple elements of social media, they've started using content to attract their buyers and or create loyalty with their existing buyers, or in some way affect the marketing strategy. But what they're discovering very quickly is either a they believe that they create too much and sales doesn't use it, or that they're not creating enough and they can't figure out how to scale it right, or it's not quite the quality that they thought it would be and they're having trouble differentiating themselves in the marketplace. Basically, it's not working. And when we peel all of that back, what we usually find is that the problem is they don't have an operation, right? What they do is, and and the easiest way to say this is, what most businesses do is conflate the idea of content and digital assets. In other words, when we go into businesses and we say, and they, they believe the CMO or the CFO or the CEO goes, yeah, we create so much content, but none of it works. When we actually go in and look at it, we go, you actually don't create that much content. What you do is you create a buttload of digital assets. You've got more PDFs than you can shake a stick at. You've got more emails, more web pages, more, you've got all sorts of things. The problem is you don't have a planning process. You don't have an operation of how to transform a few really good ideas into multiple little ideas that can be expressed in multiple ways. So they don't know how to measure. They don't know how to scale. They don't know the right skill sets. 
and they don't have the right governance process in place to make content truly an integrated function. So when we get called in, it's basically to sort all that out. What should the governance and workflow look like? What should the team skills and construct look like? What should the measurement plan look like? What should the technology plan look like so that they can actually make content a strategic function? So when you do, I love that answer. So when you go see the company, right? As you say, they have all these different assets that they call, you know, a, a lot of content created. You look at it and you just say, that's a pretty mess, right? It's not a lot of good stuff. And In so many you, cases, yeah, for sure. Yes. So you create, as you say, the governance, you know, how we're going to use this stuff. Walk me through, like, yeah, give me the baby steps on that. When you walk and said, all right, I'm looking at all this stuff, and here's some stuff we can use. Here's some stuff we can't use, right? Here's what we need to do. You know, walk me through that process. Imagine you're talking to the CMO, and you're going, you know, your baby's ugly. You know, now's the yeah, time for well, me to talk. You know, the funny thing is, is that, and we work so across so many different industries, it's really rare that we have much. I mean, we'll have an opinion on it. But as I'll often say to the CEO or the CMO or when we're, you know, when we're working with an organization, I'm not here to tell you that your content sucks, right? I'm not here to tell you that your thought leadership is not industry leading. We do that. We do that on occasion. We'll actually have people come in and say, hey, we want to do competitive analysis of the quality of our content versus the quality of our competitors and how can we start to differentiate our story. But that's actually the rare example. What's much more common is that we actually look at uh, do the complete content audit and then come back to them and say, did you know that you're, you know, 95% of the content that you're using is, you know, at the top of the funnel and that you're doing nothing in the middle of the funnel? Or did you realize that you're actually wasting all of this content by sticking it into a digital asset management system that nobody's using or that you're suboptimal in the way that you're measuring because you're not taking advantage of any sort of cost measurements? Basically, exposing the entirety of the content life cycle, not just the put it into InDesign and then publish some stuff and make it pretty again, but actually what's the entire operational aspect of content as a, you know, as a, as a P&L, right? How are you actually managing it as a part of your business so that you can understand? The, the first question I usually ask a CFO who's a little skeptical on this is I'll say, how much did you spend last year on content? And they'll kind of tilt their head, kind of like my dog tilts its head at me when it, you know, hears a high pitched sound. And I'll, I'll just let that hang there for a minute. And he'll go, well, what do you mean by content? Con content, we do, I mean, everybody does content. I'm like, exactly. And if you can't put your arms around the cost, it's probably the most expensive thing that you're doing that you have zero idea how much you're spending money on. Let's answer that question so you can do it more effectively. When you start, I mean, yeah, that's a great question, by the way, because that really, in your brain, you you have to think it's not what, what content you produced, it's the manpower or woman power behind that content and the cost of everything associated with that. And, and I love this whole concept of a content audit. Then you call their baby ugly, basically what you just said. <laughs> just <Yeah. kidding. laughs> you, know, you know, it's funny because it's a great uh, a sales strategy, right, is that when you do a content audit and you said, did you know – and then you provide them with those pieces of insight. Like, did you know that 95% of your content is aimed at the top of the funnel, so forth right. and so on? And I, and I love that approach. What has been your response? You know, you're coming in and now you've done the content audit. You kind of push the CMO back on their heels a little bit when you ask them to think about their spend. You know, what are some of the, uh, what, some of the resistance you've gotten and how have you overcome that resistance? Yeah, it's a, it's it's a tough one because it's it's not terribly sexy, right? Because you know, 
I'll give you an example of this, which is, you know, the, the, what many times we'll work with a brand and the expectation is that their problem is they're just not creating high quality content. In other words, they haven't found the right message or they haven't found the right thought leadership and they just haven't found some missing pot of gold story that they, that they want to tell. And they're just hoping beyond hope that that's the problem because that seems achievable, right? That seems really sort of, that seems like okay in some weird reason, but almost eight or nine times out of 10, what we usually find is there's no process, there's no governance, content is everybody's job and nobody's strategy. And so our recommendation is basically it's changing the way that Bob and Jim and Mary and Sally and Sue work. And, and, it's, and it's changing workflows. And as my colleague, Kathy McKnight here at, at Content Advisory says, yay, change, said nobody ever. Um, <laughs> and basically, right. the, the resistance is nobody wants to change, right? You know, nobody, you know, everybody wants change, but nobody wants themselves to change. And so that change management is the hardest part and the biggest resistance to actually making things better. And it's because in many ways you're saying, you're not going to create content anymore. You are going to create more content and you're going to do something entirely different. And that is hard. The way to overcome that is to show them step by step by step how it makes life better, how it makes you know everything they're going to do so much better and so much more measurable and give them the opportunity to create that amazing new wonderful pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So yeah, I love what you said, everybody's job, but nobody's strategy, right? When it comes to yeah. creating content, I love that line. So, so sell me, Robert, I want you to sell me. I'm, I'm one of these resistant employees in there, right? And you're coming in, you've done the content audit. The CMO says, I think this guy knows what he's talking about. I think we should listen to him. And now you're in the room with these folks. And how do you create, like, like from a tactical standpoint, you say, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to change. What do you show them? Give me, like, you know, pull back the curtain. I want to see what's, what's that conversation about? What are you showing them? What do you tell them? There's a couple of things depending on who they are in the business. But, but one of the most common ones is, you know, so everybody in content, everybody in marketing has a sense of a calendar, right? And so what I usually do is show them theirs. And I'll say, this is your calendar today which is ostensibly nothing more than a to-do list. In other words, in most businesses, content, and this includes content for like sales enablement, it includes content for marketing and brand and the web and email newsletters and all the things that everybody's doing, right? Nobody's not doing content, right? Everybody's doing some level of content. And so we look at your calendar and I go, how is that calendar? And it's basically, it, what it is, it's a today looking backward, in other words, everything on this calendar is already due. It's just a to-do list of how we can shove through stuff through a pipeline, a factory, if you will. Some people even call it their content factory as fast as we possibly can. So it's literally just the short order cook, the menu, right? It's just literally everything's been ordered. It's already late by the time it hits this calendar list, et cetera. Then I show them someone who's successfully doing this which they're usually doing exponentially more than same size team, same size budget, same size everything else, but they're doing exponentially more. And the content they're working on today won't be needed or used for 
8, 10, 12 weeks. And they start, and, and then I say, now, something co- occurs, something you had no idea was going to occur, a possibility to newsjack some wonderful item, your competitor gets acquired, somebody, you know, a, a big opportunity comes your way, and you need to be able to stop on a dime and be able to react to that in a way that you can upset the apple cart and start to improvise. This, with your to-do list, you can't. Correct. You're immediately turning, telling people no. This, with a forward-looking eight or ten weeks, you go, you know what? We can delay this by three weeks. We can delay that by three weeks because we've got time. We've got time, and we've got calmness, and we've got bandwidth, and the ability to improvise. And if that doesn't sound good to you, well, then I can't help you. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. I love the way you say it. I can actually see you delivering that message to them. I would think when people know what delivered, I have yeah. delivered that message before. I've delivered it a few times. And, I, and I'm sure the, uh, by the way, the, the long-term view is, is always one of my favorites, right? Let's plan this out. And I love the fact that you brought up trigger events, right? Something happens in the market that we should yeah. talk about that would definitely garner probably a lot of traffic that we didn't anticipate. So, I mean, how did you work with... <clears throat> How did you get connected and work with Big Tin Can, who's sponsoring this podcast? What did you do that was so remarkable, Robert? <laughs> well, you, you know, podcast. here's the thing. I've been working with the Big Tin Can folks for a while. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, one of my favorite people over there, Caroline, who, who I've known for a number of years, um, brought me in actually two years ago. And we wrote a white paper and did a webinar together. Um, on, uh, you know, on the idea of sales enablement and sort of the, you know, where content fit into the sales enablement process. And then most recently, um, she brought me back in, um, to work with them on another thought leadership piece, which was based on a, a, a an idea that we've, we've been toying around with for, you know, some time now. Um, and it's, we're not the only ones working on this, by the way. There's a number of people, namely Brent Adamson over at Gartner, who's, who's oh, yeah. also done a lot of thinking on this, this idea of the, He's what, been I out call, here, what I have come to call the myth of the empowered buyer. Right. Um, and it's this, it's a very B2B idea. Um, and the interesting thing is, is that it, it, it's really about this. How do we change the content and sales enablement process in a way that's actually effective these days and why it's becoming less effective? And so we ended up writing a white paper together, and, and here we are. The, uh, so I've interviewed Brent Adamson. I, 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 I love the guy. You know what I mean? I, oh, his, he's, ener- he's, his thinking is fantastic. His ener- yeah, his thinking, his energy is off the chart. And I became a fan of him and Matt Dixon, who's also been on the podcast, uh, yeah. when they wrote The Challenger Sale. Uh, Matt Dixon, yeah. big shout out, just released a new book with Ted McKenna called The Jolt Effect. I think it's very interesting where he talks about de-risking sales. But, you know, when I was talking to Brett Adamson, we were talking, he said something that was really fascinating. He said something, it isn't what the, it's something about, it isn't what the buyer thinks, it knows about buying. It's how they feel about what they're buying that will determine whether they'll make the buying decision or not. And he was talking about how we need to become more like sales Sherpa, I think is his word, you know, and really guide the buyer through the buying behavior. Don't tell them guide them. And I thought that was very powerful. Add to that because you wrote this paper called Connecting the Consultative Experience. And then there you do have this whole thing about, you know, the new buyer and the misunderstandings. Talk to me about the paper. Tie Brent Adamson in there. (laughs) Well, so we had started looking at this um, before I knew of Brent's work. And as I started to do more research into it, I certainly came across his his work in this area. So the idea is, is that basically... 
we've made this assumption, and this is something that has bugged me for a long time. That you know, in sales, especially in sales enablement, you know, and and, and I came out of, you know, with the company I was a CMO of was a you know was a B two B technology company where I dealt with inside sales and field sales and enterprise sales and had the whole you know challenges of of, of feeding them with content and trying to make them more consultative and all of the you know classic challenges that we have. And something that bugged me was there was this sort of thread going on the internet that said, you know, there's now an asymmetric relationship between buyers and sellers and buyers have more information than sellers do. And buyers are more empowered and buyers are, you know, basically coming in as tyrants now and don't want to talk to salespeople and want to do everything themselves. And, and it sort of painted this picture of buyers as sort of this, you know, godlike figure coming in and sort of, you know, you know, swooping down and sort of self-servicing themselves. And I thought, that's just not my experience, right? My experience with buyers is, honestly, they're sometimes more overwhelmed than we are. Um, and they don't want to become subject matter experts in the thing that they're buying. And the reason that these buying committees exist is not because everybody loves working together. It's because some big boss has said, go get become an expert in this particular thing that we need to buy and form five, five people to help you do that and go buy the best thing. And God help you if you don't, right? If you don't buy the best one, then it's on you. And so the pressure, the challenge of today's buying experience and this is where Brett's work comes into you know such uh, focus you know as he says in one of his pieces he says look in many cases the buying journey is 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 what's challenging right it's not has nothing to do with the sellers at all now here's where I flip over to my side which is the marketing guy side to bring back you know what you said in the very beginning is like I don't like marketing very much is what have we done to respond to that? Well, marketers, content marketers especially, our knee-jerk reaction to the whole thought leadership, buying enablement idea is just to dump more research on why to change. That's the B2B mantra. More thought leadership, more thought leadership, more thought leadership, more thought leadership. Why to change? Why you should change? Why you should do this? Why you should change to this kind of solution? Why you should use our approach? Why you should look at this? Why? And what we haven't done is given our salespeople how to change the idea of helping them guide the buyer and making them super valuable to the buyer on how to make a decision, which apparently, and this is research that we didn't do, but Gartner did, that's what they want. That's what buyers want these days is they want guidance on how to change. That's what starts to differentiate us. So what we put into place in this white paper was really just a framework of how to start to think about a governance and process to start to think about how do you change the way that your writers, your content creators work with sales to actually enable them to become not just a distribution of content, but actually partners that you are enabling them to be the content, to help sales be the differentiated content and thought leadership that is so valuable. I, I love that. The, you know, the whole thing that, you know, the thing, we're so online, we're, we're so like, like in sync, it, it's, it isn't funny. The, because every time, you know, when the Challenger sale first came out, I think it was December 2011, something like that. And it was said the buyer was 57% of the buying cycle, right? Then, I don't know, Sirius yeah. came out with their study and whoever else came out at 80, 90% of their buying cycle. Right. Why do you need salespeople? Was a scream. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. And my statement, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we agree. 
I was now saying, I was just, I was like, yeah, this is good because I want a qualified buyer. I want somebody who's formed their preferences. And when they call me, they've already know they've done the research. So I have an informed buyer calling me. And I always told people that in today's market, here comes my statement, agree or disagree. Then today's market, assuming, you know, all other things equal on product and service, that the salesperson now becomes the ultimate differentiator in any buying process. 100% agree. 100% agree. It is a customer experience. And if we don't treat the salesperson as a customer experience, then we're failing, right? The reason, you know, it's so funny because the immediate question I have when I say, and I believe all those numbers, by the way, right? I believe mm-hmm. 70% or 80% or what, you yeah. know, whatever, whatever Forrester or Gartner, or, you know, yep. IDC or whatever other research firm is saying mm-hmm. how much of the buying journey is already complete before a salesperson gets a call. I believe that. However, what nobody ever talks about is why. Why, why is that true? It's not that they just all of a sudden are feeling, you know, all gung ho and unicorns and rainbows about the way that they feel about their buying process and they've now gone on. No, they're stressed. They don't want it to. And their experience of talking with salespeople is in a world where whenever they talk to some salesperson, the salesperson's conversation with them goes a little like this. Yes, that's great. I'm so glad you've done this research. By the way, we could send you some more research. Can I sign you up to our email newsletter? Yeah. And the buyer goes, okay, fine. You know, it's yet another box to check. Yes, we read that white paper. Yes, we did that. Yes, we looked yep. at that research. Yes, we looked at that tech sheet. And they just add it to their stack of all the stuff that they've done. And they go, the salesperson's useless in that relationship. If they're just a distribution of content to make sure that I've read everything, then that's... But if, if for example, the salesperson is like, I know you've been through all this research and I know where, you're, where you sit right now. Let me help guide you on this journey to help you make a decision, whether or not it's mine or not, right? Whether or not it favors me or not, let me help you understand what does implementation look like? What does the post-sale look like? What does, how do you make a decision? You know, all of these things to help them make a decision is going to differentiate that experience. And, and it's just, it, it will differentiate you because A, nobody's doing it right now. So that customer experience is so important that I, I couldn't agree more that it, it becomes more important for the salesperson. Now, going back to our previous discussion, we could say, is sales the right title for that person anymore? Because they're really just a, you know, a helper in, in facilitating the actual transaction or the actual process. They're not really trying to sell you something as much as they are trying to actually help that customer. But that's semantics at this point. I, it, it's sales is the ultimate customer experience. But you raised, you know, early on, I love that. Early on, you raised on a, up a good point, raised a good point. And that is that the salespeople have been told to sell product, service, feature, benefit, advantage, gain. That's, that's the mindset, the mantra. And I think we've all, we can both agree that, you know, today the customer wants to be guided towards a solution, right? Yeah. The question to something you kind of alluded to, I want you to put a finer point on it. Are the salespeople prepared to actually guide as opposed to sell? If we can just use that as a distinction, they're selling, then there's guiding. Are they prepared to guide? Well, that's a, uh, most of them aren't. Yeah. So that's the, that's the real key is because we spend so much time, and this is really what the heart of the white paper is all about that Big Tin Can was kind enough to sponsor. Um, you know, they, the heart of that white paper was really about the idea that the process needs to be, you know, we talked earlier about 
how once you have a great process in place, it gives you the freedom to create more content, to have the flexibility for those trigger events that we started to talk about. Well, one of those trigger events is, is educating and enabling our salespeople to be better guides. In other words, one of my favorite things now is when a B2B company will say, here's the white paper. And alongside that white, it basically is a portfolio of content now. Here's the white paper. Here's an infographic that basically helps you present it if you're going to present it. And by the way, here's the script. Here's the background information so that you're as smart on it as they are. And so you're basically giving them the ability to become guides. You're giving, you know, you're educating them. You're enabling them. You're enabling them to be the content. That's the real key here is, is that we're not, they're not just a distribution channel to help you smartly email, provide for download links, et cetera, of content you've created. You're creating the content medium as the salesperson themselves so that they add value, so that they create that experience. And that means taking the time as a marketer, as a subject matter expert, as the business to invest in that content, to invest in the basically transforming your salespeople into those guides. And that's one of the things that we talk a lot about is how to start to think about, okay, if I'm going to create 10 pieces, what that really means is that I'm creating 10 pieces plus all of the ancillary meta pieces that are going to help the salespeople understand what those 10 pieces are. Man, that is such a great answer because that's, I think that's the new salesperson, right? The, we'll, we'll use Brent's words, Sherpa. I don't know if he used, he was the first one to use, but let's just go with that. One of the things that came out in a recent study, so the, the book that I mentioned by Matt Dixon uh, that partnered with uh, Brent on his book, and his new book, The Jolt Effect, what they did, I think you might find this interesting, Robert. They took, you know, post during the pandemic, they were able to record conversations, people talking. So Matt has a company called Tether, and what they did is they collected 2.5 million recordings of calls, and now they can actually analyze using AI the calls. And one of the things they came up with or uh, discovered, and I just want to get your thoughts on it, this goes back to, again, being a, a Sherpa, is that, say, salespeople who had an advocacy style would advocate a solution, in other words, guide, suggest, versus those who were reactive, like, well, what do you think, Mr. Customer? What would you like to do? The the difference in sales in close rate was like 144% when you did the advocacy style. In other words, you used that. Any any thoughts on that? You know, I mean, look, I would not purport myself to be an expert in sales psychology and sales, you know, profession. I'm a marketing guy, right? So... Um, as you're, we've you're, smart. No, you're so you humble. Know? You're okay. If you want to go take the humble route, fine. But this boy knows a lot. If you're in marketing, yeah. you know a lot about psychology of buying. I'm well, calling BS on that one, Robert. Yeah. You're smarter than you think. You're saying here's here's what I would say to that. I would say, you know, a hundred percent, right? I mean, it makes if you just think about it for five minutes, it, it, it's a no duh, right? I mean, right. would you rather talk with someone who's going to help you make a decision? And, you know, regardless of whether or not that decision, you know, or at least you have the feeling that regardless of whether the decision goes their way or not, they're an advocate for you, right? They're, they're there to advocate for you. So even if it doesn't go your way today, it's going to go your way tomorrow. And, or would you rather talk to someone who's literally sits down and goes, how many licenses can I put you in today? Right? You know, it's, uh, of course, you want to talk to the person who's going to be a helpful guide for you. The real challenge is, is you can't have the experience until you have the experience. You know what I mean? And so 
the, the in other words, this is this is it's a classic challenge that I always talk to CMOs about, which is when they try and differentiate on customer service. Right, our customer service is so much better. Well, you can't have the customer service until you actually are a customer. So it's really hard to differentiate. It's like I don't care. Wait, wait, right? wait! I just got. I got to pause you on that. I've never really thought about that till now. <laughs> right. So, that's such a great perspective. Sorry. <laughs> that's yeah. great. And so. The idea is is that you can't have that consultative experience with the salesperson until you actually have the – so what we have to do is provide – just realize that th- the world has made it very difficult for buyers to trust that they're going to have that experience. And so now what we have to do is establish a content strategy that starts to do the same thing and act as a proxy of that. So when they're doing that 70, 80, 90% of research before they talk to someone – they get that feeling that we're already on their side, that we're already there, that there is a proxy for that advocate already there. And if they talk to somebody, it might just be another human that can help them advocate as well because they're already pretty you know, cynical about the whole process. So what we have to do is not just change the sales process. That's fine and wonderful and great, but we actually have to change the content process as well because we're already in, you know, it's the, you know, it's the red ocean, right? You know, I think that's the right, the, the blue, red ocean and blue ocean, right? The red ocean is already noisy and busy and challenging, and, and, it, and it's, we don't get the benefit of the doubt. We have to actually establish that exception before. I like, you know, again, another... One of the benefits I get from doing these podcasts, I have guests like you just kind of give me a little twist in perspective. And, you you know, we all know that marketing is all about, you know, custom, you know uh, forming the customer's preferences, right? But what you've added with something interesting, you said uh, the, the, the content has to be a proxy. But it also, not only the, the, the preference, but also they have to walk away with a certain sentiment, if I can use that phrase, a yeah. feeling about the people providing the actual content. And I, I love that thought process now that they should walk away with the feeling that these folks can really help me. And as you've put it, they're on my side of the table. Yeah. I mean, that's it, right? I mean, it's it's – you know, it's one thing to say, okay, great, we're going to change our process so that we have anybody who goes, you know, for that middle of the funnel, middle of the sales process content, we're now going to have our salespeople be engaged and enabled and educated so that they can facilitate that better, they can become better guides. But if we only stop there, we might slowly improve as we start to pull in more people to that, you know, but the way to make to really move that needle is to change the con- the front end of the content too. All because look, none of us is big enough, smart enough, or you know, make enough sway with the general culture to change this idea right now. That basically buyers are a little bit cynical and they're going to go out and do all this research before they ever talk to a salesperson. Mm-hmm. And so, our goal as marketers. Uh, regardless, by the way, regardless of B2B, B2C, but our goal as marketers needs to be how do we change our content in a way so that they get the feeling, and this is where we differentiate, that our content is a little different, right? Our content is not just your standard industry research, and these are the five reasons that, you know, you need to change and, you know, blah, 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 and some wonderful metaphor that we find for our white paper that does this or our thought leadership webinar that does that. But how do we actually help people change? Like, how do we actually become an advocate in the content itself so that they go, maybe I want to talk to somebody there because they're actually doing something a little different than 
than my than these other people that we've checked the box of. Let's just let's just throw a flyer over the wall and send an email in or send an inquiry in. And if the first response comes back, how can I advocate for you rather than sort of, well, you just downloaded a gated white paper, so you must be in a buying mood, right? So right. let me sell you some stuff. Instead, it becomes, let me advocate for you, and you follow up that promise with a great customer experience. Well, now you're on, right? Now you're, now you're, now you're really flying with gas. Well, what I like about that is I'll take it to what you said earlier. You know how you do the, uh, the content assessment or the audit? And yeah. then you're going to talk to them, the team about the governance and the rules and the plan and the strategy. But now I can really kind of get in your head a little bit, and I can see the layers that you put on that when you're talking to them because you give them that flavor. This is what we're trying to do with the content. So it's not just about That's producing right. content or a schedule. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's the feeling we're trying to give our customers. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely, because now – you know, I mean, and this is one of the core tenets of our, you know, of our, of the way that we put together frameworks and governance processes and workflow processes. Of course, once you get sales enabled and educated, they become the signal point, right? They become such an important information and data point about the content strategy. In other words, they're the ones having the conversations with customers. And so, What's resonating? What's not resonating? How are you guiding? What's when, where are they pressing back? Where are they? Where do they really need? So instead of the salespeople, the sales team saying stuff like, "I need another brochure," or "I need something with a different hero image," or "Gosh, that thing that talked about product features works a lot better than that case study that you gave me," now we're having quality conversations back and forth. Like, what really worked? What you know when you help them. What was the thing that really got them over the line? Or when we started talking about change, what was their biggest problem? You know, when, but it's having those converse, those kinds of that level of conversation with a customer that provides that insight. And then the content people can get it back because that's something you're not going to get from a Google right. Analytics spreadsheet. Have you, have you ever like, you know, worked with a company, call it Big Tin Can or somebody else, and then gone back and interviewed some of their folks who actually bought, who went through the journey? purchased and say, why did you do that? Why did you buy? You know, we haven't, um, you know, and I will tell you, honestly, the number of companies that when we do, when we go through this process, you know, it's, it's, this is not easy. This is not an easy thing to do. And it's exceedingly difficult to get right because in many ways, as I mentioned before, with the, with regard to the change management piece, it's really hard to get out of that habit. It's really hard to break that habit of looking at, you know, because in some cases, by the way, it's not that broken, right? You know, one, one of the hardest things to do in business, I've learned this over the last 30 years of, of, of being in business, one of the most difficult things to do is incrementally fix, fix things that are only incrementally broken. In I, other knew words, you, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I knew and it. so, so it's right. like the sales process isn't that broken, but we're trying to take it to the next level. And when you go, great, we can do this and it's going to be incrementally improved for a while, but it requires a big shift. Hmm. People go, man, that's a lot of change for a little bit of results. And it's like, well, no, it's going to, you know, that, that compounds over years that you'll actually shift and take a new direction. And actually, but the immediate short-term results are pretty minimal. And so, you know, instead of, you know, instead of getting, you know, 30 leads per month, we're going to get 35 leads per month or, you know, or, you know, or those leads are going to be higher quality or, you know, whatever the sort of incremental results are, but it requires a fundamental shift in the way that we change our processes. 
And that's tough. It's a tough business case to make in many cases because it just it's a new way for people to do their work. But it's so worth it. It's so worth it. And so, yeah, no, we don't typically do a lot of post-customer interviews. We're just not that kind of consulting firm. We're more on the operations side. But I have heard many, many success stories coming out of our clients that say, this really, really, really helped. And I've heard more, and this is sort of the punchline to the whole thing that I just mentioned, I've heard more VPs of marketing or VPs of sales go, hey, you know, a year and a half ago, you came into this company and where I was working and you suggested this thing and it didn't work, but I took your plan to this new company I'm working for and it's working great. Bam, bam. I'm going to let you close this out, Robert, on that topic. Um, you know, what type of companies should seek your help? Like, you know, I want you to say, Victor, you know, companies that are here or doing this or not doing this, these are the companies we believe that we can really help. What would that be? Final word. You know, it, I think the, the, the biggest opportunity is for companies to fix, you know, as I often say, your content will never provide sustainable competitive advantage, but a content operation just might. And if you're struggling with the amount of content getting created, the quality of content getting created, or how you are measuring it in your sales and marketing process, we can be helpful in, in, in helping you evolve that. Love it. Robert Rose, thank you very much. And that's it for the Sales Influence Podcast. Leave me some feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever you're listening or watching. Check out Robert. Connect with him on LinkedIn. The information will be down in the description. And on that note, this is Victor Antonio, always reminding you, selling ain't hard when you have the right content and you know how. Take care. Big Tin Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. 